Uh, well, good morning. It is so good to see you all. Whoever thought that we had fear of being snowed out on Palm Friday, or sorry, Palm Sunday. I'm CM already in Good Friday, too. Palm Sunday, but it, we're here, and that is good, and it is so good to see all of you um, this morning. So as we dive in, um, I'm going to invite you to reflect for a moment on your years as a teenager. Or for some of you, perhaps those are too far in the distant past, and so maybe you want to think about um, your children's years as teenagers or your grandchildren's years as teenagers. And I want to ask you if this kind of situation sounds familiar. So Sunday afternoon, mom and dad take teenage daughter Sally to the mall because Sally, like most teenagers, is growing like a weed and she's outgrown her shoes. She needs a new pair of shoes. So they go and get her this new shiny pair of shoes and she loves them. And all the way home, she is just praising mom and dad. Mom and dad, you are the best parents in the world. I love you. Feels good, right? Mom and dad feel so good. Fast forward to Friday morning. Sally has gotten an invitation to this cool party on the weekend, and she asks her parents if she can go. If her parents will drive her, like they drove her to the mall. And while mom and dad, they call around and find out that this party's being thrown by a kid whose parents are going to be out of town. They find out this kid is pretty notorious for throwing parties that get himself and those who attend into lots and lots of serious trouble. But Sally, she really wants to go. And she pleads with mom and dad, come on, all the cool kids are going to be there. You don't understand if I don't go, my life is going to be ruined. I need to go to the party. But mom and dad, they love their daughter. They love her more than she'll ever know. And so they won't cave to her pleading or her protesting no, Sally, you're not going. What does Sally reply? <laughs> Mom and Dad, you are the worst. I hate you. Right? Has anyone ever been there? From you are the best, I love you, to you are the worst, I hate you. In the course of five days. Yes, Fast turnaround, right? Did anyone ever do this to their parents? No. <laughs> I know I did, my poor parents, right? And friends, this, this is the same thing that happened to Jesus during Holy Week. Palm Sunday, the crowds are waving their palms high in the air. Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, you are the king. Jesus, we love you. And only days later, the crowds are shouting, crucify him. Jesus, you are the worst. Jesus, we hate you. Crucify him. In a matter of days, they go from love to hate, from adoration to crucifixion. If you pay close attention to the crowd's emotions during Holy Week, it feels like a roller coaster. And we wonder how does this happen? How do they turn so quickly? 
But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all know how. Because the truth is, we've probably all done it ourselves. When we don't get something we think that we want in the moment, whether it be from God, from a parent, from a spouse or a friend, perhaps from an organization, whatever it is, we can quickly turn our emotions from love to hate, from adoration to crucifixion. The truth is, we've probably all had it done to us at some point, too. But friends, the king that we serve, Jesus Christ, is somewhat like Sally's loving parents. During Holy Week, Jesus refuses to cave to the crowd's wants. He refuses to cave in order that he might give them what they truly need. He refuses to cave to their wants to give them what they need. And the irony is, as we're going to find out on Easter morning in just one week, the irony is that what they need, what Jesus gives them, is what they've truly wanted in the first place. It turns out that what they need is all that they've ever truly wanted in the first place. So keep these thoughts in mind, wants versus needs, as we read John 12, verses 12 to 27. It's the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. But before we uh, read, I'm going to pray for us. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty, quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may receive grace to show Christ's love in lives given to your service. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. And it was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. This is the word of the Lord. Wants versus needs. Just what is it that the crowd of Jesus' day is wanting when Jesus enters Jerusalem? They want Jesus to be their king. That's why they're there. Indeed, they declare that he is the king of Israel. And they are right. Jesus is king. But in many ways, the crowd is also wrong. For Jesus is not the king they want. He is the king they need. To help us understand that, let's talk for a minute about the crowd's waving of the palms. We couldn't go a whole Palm Sunday without talking about palms, could we? And it's especially prevalent because the Gospel of John is the only gospel that names these branches as being palm branches. Did you know that? And we are in the Gospel of John. And this is really important because of what the author is trying to highlight about the crowd's perception of Jesus by mentioning that they are palm branches. So this is what we need to know about palms. So palms in the ancient world, they weren't the symbol of vacation like they are for us today. All you Florida people coming back or looking at those thinking you were in warm weather. Palms in the ancient world, they were the symbol of victory. Whether you were Roman or Greek or Jewish across all cultures, if you wanted to declare victory, you waved a palm. So think of this triumphal entry. It's like a parade of people waving flags. So it's like Super Bowl Sun, the parade that comes after Super Bowl Sunday, when people are lining the streets in Philadelphia waving their Eagles flags, and they're saying, the Eagles are victorious. That's what they're saying. Imagine that, waving these flags, saying, we have gotten the victory. So in the same fashion, the crowds are saying, Jesus is victorious. It's a parade of victory. The crowds are celebrating the triumph that they are confident that Jesus is about to bring. They've done the parade beforehand. And they are right. They are right to celebrate. Jesus is about to bring the victory. Jesus is about to triumph. They are right. But they are also wrong. Because the triumph Jesus is about to bring isn't what they expect. The crowd wants one thing, but Jesus knows they need something entirely different. So what do the crowds want? What they wanted, well, at least what they thought they wanted at the time, was for Jesus to bring a worldly type of victory. A victory for them in the moment for Israel. 
Now, it's important to note that when I am saying Israel, I'm not talking about the modern nation state. I'm talking about the people with whom God had made a covenant. Those people who worshiped the Lord, to whom God had said, I will be your God, you will be my people. Post-Jesus, the covenant is open to all who believe in Jesus as Savior, so the church becomes the new covenant people. So just keep that in mind. When you hear Israel, think God's covenant people. The equivalent today is the church. So what Israel, God's covenant people, wanted was for Jesus to be their king. And they wanted Jesus to grant them success in their terms. In fact, the psalm that the crowds are quoting as Jesus enters Jerusalem is Psalm 118. Verse 25 says, Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you. Give us success. For most Israelites of the day, the success that they imagined was a conquering of the Romans. That's what really they had in mind. The Israelites wanted to be restored to power, to gain victory over those who had been ruling over them. Psalm 118, which they were shouting, was originally written as a song of victory for defeating the nations surrounding the Israelites. So likely, many in the crowds are expecting this of Jesus, for Jesus to give them victory over the foreign nations, over the Romans. Perhaps that's what some were thinking. Perhaps some in the crowd were thinking of success more in personal terms. Remember, Jesus was well known as a miracle worker. And right before this, Jesus had performed his last pinnacle miracle, raising Jesus from the dead. We read in John 12, 18, that it was because of this miracle that the crowd went to meet him. So surely they're thinking, if Jesus did that for Lazarus, what might Jesus do for me? I'd better follow this guy. And these desires of the crowd whether it was freedom from the Romans or for personal miracles, they aren't bad desires at all. They are very good desires. It's just that they are too small of desires. Because you see, Jesus has something much bigger and better in mind. Think of Sally wanting to go to this party. She has this desire to be accepted and loved and welcomed and those are good desires. They are just misplaced desires, right? Trying to find it in the wrong places. That's kind of what's happening. The crowd has good desires. They're just misplaced. And Jesus has a bigger picture in mind. Because, see, Jesus has in mind not just these temporal wants of the crowds. He has the needs of the whole world in mind. He has the desires of the whole world, the desires of God for the entire cosmos, not just for the present day, but for all eternity. The crowds are thinking in worldly terms, but Jesus represents the kingdom of God, which is something entirely different, something much, much grander, much more powerful, much more fulfilling. So to help us think through this and apply it to our own lives, I want to show you this, this little chart. So this was presented at the, last, the latest meeting of our regional RCA pastors. 
It's a, a simple view of the path to spiritual maturity. There are all sorts of examples of this throughout scripture, but I'm not going to go into those details right now. It's a three-hour presentation. We're going to like just give you a little snippet. So we'll return to this in about a month when we'll kick off a series on evangelism and outreach. But for now, just give you the summary that spiritual maturity tends to progress like this. A person is looking for something, which you see in the red. Then they move to an infant disciple and then over to a maturing disciple and then finally a kingdom-activated disciple. I think Jesus' parable of the sower, if you're familiar with that, it fits really well with this model. So those looking for something, they are those who are curious about Jesus. They're not quite sure yet if they want to follow him, but they want to check him out. And as an example of this in our text would be the Greeks in verse 21. They come to Philip asking him to see Jesus. They're curious. They're looking for something. So they ask to see him. Then we have infant disciples. These are our new disciples, but they are prone to drift quickly. The parable says when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. We can imagine that there were probably some infant disciples in the crowd. When trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. Then third, there are maturing disciples. Maturing disciples are also susceptible to turning from Jesus, though it might not be so obvious. That's because maturing disciples, they are following Jesus, but they're primarily following Jesus for what's in it for them. There's a a strong inward focus. They want to follow Jesus, but only really when when it's good for them. So in the parable of the sower, they're described like this by Jesus. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke them, making it unfruitful. That's because their lives are still mostly oriented toward trying to do what they think is best for them. And if Jesus doesn't fit that, then they're apt to drift away. Now my hunch, this is, this is just my hunch, but I I'm guessing that most of the crowd that first Palm Sunday were somewhere between quadrants one and three, looking for something, infant disciple, maturing disciple. But Jesus wants to invite them into something greater. Jesus wants to invite them into this green quadrant four, this kingdom-activated discipleship. So kingdom-activated disciples, they are Jesus followers who align themselves totally with the kingdom of God. It's not just about what Jesus can do for them in this present life. It's about a much grander vision of what Jesus is doing for all the world, for all eternity. It's a much bigger vision. And what Jesus says in John 12 and then goes on to show on Good Friday is that the rules of God's kingdom are very different than the earthly kingdoms that can tempt the other three quadrants from drifting away. So Jesus says this in John 12, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
in the parable of the sower, Jesus similarly describes kingdom-activated disciples. And he says, he, he says this of them. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. This is the one who has heard and understood Jesus' words. Words like, those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this little hate your life in this world um, bit has, has tripped me up in the past. And I wonder, what, what does it mean? Well, if you look in the original language and where else Jesus uses this, what it doesn't mean is that Jesus is calling us to despise ourselves, to walk around depressed and self-loathing, just, just self-loathing all the time. No, Jesus also tells us you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rather, to hate your life in this world is to, to not turn to things of this world to give your life fulfillment and purpose. To not trust in the fleeting things of this life to give you your deepest desires. Instead, Jesus invites us to find our life in the only place that true life can be found, which is in Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus Christ that we find what we've always wanted all along. We find the ultimate security and meaning as beloved children of God. We find ultimate fulfillment and purpose. We find lasting joy and peace and hope. It is in Christ that we find true life. We find life eternal. And when we have found all of these things in Christ, we are free to loosen our grip and all, all of those earthly wants that we have, that we cling to so strongly. We are able to let go of those worldly wants in order to participate in something grander, something much more rewarding, which is God's kingdom mission. Have you ever met someone living in this fourth quadrant, this kingdom-activated quadrant? Anyone? I know you have because many of you here are living in it, and I've met you and you've met one another. It's a beautiful thing to live in this quadrant. It's powerful. And when you see it, you crave it. Because it's a life that overflows with peace and love and purpose. It's a kind of life that produces a crop, producing 160 or 30 times what was sown. It is a life overflowing with good fruit for themselves and for others. Friends, this is the kind of life that Jesus wants to offer us as king. Life in the kingdom of God. Abundant life now and for eternity. Jesus has a bigger vision in mind on Palm Sunday. That is why on this first Palm Sunday in the days that followed, Jesus refused to cave to what the crowd wanted. Because Jesus knew their vision was much too narrow, it was much too self-focused, it was much too temporal. Like Sally begging her parents, this is exactly what I need in the moment. Jesus says, no, no, trust me, I have something greater in mind. So because of his love, a love that we might never fully understand in this life, Jesus goes on to be a different kind of king. 
He refuses to cave to their pleading, to their protesting, to their I hate you and crucify him. And he stays the path. And he stays the path in order to be what they need. He stays the path in order to give them the truest desires of their hearts. He stays the path to be the heavenly king who would win the ultimate victory, a victory that was greater than anything they had asked for, a victory which only God could achieve, a victory over all evil and suffering and death forever. This is the victory that Jesus offers to the crowds who are shouting to Hosanna. And it's the victory that he offers not just to those who are praising him, but also to the Romans who will crucify him, to the corrupt religious leaders who ordered his execution, to all who had turned on him, to you and me today. Because you see, Jesus' vision was greater. It was not just for the Israelites of the time to conquer the Romans or just to do a few miracles here and now, but it was to conquer for eternity, to offer healing for eternity. So thank God that Jesus refuses to be the kind of king we want. And praise God that Jesus chooses to be the kind of king we need. For in the end, we find that what we need is actually what we've truly wanted all along. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our king. Help us to trust you in your ways, to set aside our earthly wants that might block our vision of your kingdom purposes. Help us to praise you for the king that you are, a king who has loved us more than we will ever know this side of eternity. Help us to embrace this holy week with our hearts open to all that you have done and all that you continue to do and the hope that we have in life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.